0: You know, the details of the book of Revelation are insanely difficult to comprehend, but the overall message, the big idea, is insanely simple. The long and short of Revelation can be summed up as follows. It was written to encourage Christians to pursue Jesus with every breath, with every thought, and every action in the midst of unspeakable suffering, simply because Jesus is worthy. For the non-believer, it was written to terrify him, and it's God's grace. It's God's grace. Thinks he, think about it. He tells us what's going to happen in the end. Can you imagine? It's an unbelievable grace that he does that. And he says through this book, come to me while there's still time. It's not nuance. There's no hints. It's, hey, look, the result of sin is death, and the ultimate destruction that sin brings is coming. So come to me now while there's still time. In one sentence, this letter says to us all, Jesus is coming, and even though all hell will break loose on the earth, in the end, Jesus wins. And he rights every wrong, restores every injustice, and will renew the earth to the state it was always meant to be in before sin entered entered into the hearts of man. In chapters four through five last week, we read of the glory of Christ and of God, and we said that out of that holiness of God comes certain implications For the non-believer in chapter 6, we said those implications were judgment and wrath. And then in chapter 7, those implications were glorious for the believer. It was a message of rescue and assurance in the midst of incredible suffering and wrath during this final day of the Lord, where Jesus will come back to judge and then restore all things. Now in chapter 8, verses 2 through 11, we see this cycle repeat itself. Remember, we said that Revelation is cyclical, not chronological, meaning it'll share judgment for the non-believer. Then it gives a foreshadowing of God's grace when he restores his church at the second coming to give his people hope even before the second coming is fully prophesied towards the end of the book. He gives hope and then judgment comes again. And uh, throughout the whole process, we see that there are some throughout Revelation who come to know Christ as a result of God's judgment. But... Most harden their heart, and we see that through Genesis, through Revelation, through all of God's redemptive history. We see God coming with judgment on those who are living in rebellion against him, but few actually turn, which is the purpose of God's judgment. So John was led by the Spirit to pen last week and this week's portion of the letter that we're reading in such a way that events of judgment and rescue are laid out, and then also the details are filled in afterwards. Kind of like the show I may or may not be into called The Man in the High Castle. Do I have any takers on that? We got a few. I see some guilty hands. Some guilty hands. That's why I said I may or may not be into it. It's the fictional account of a parallel universe where Nazi Germany won the war, obviously, fictional, but won the war occupying the U.S. and uh, making the U.S. the greater Nazi Reich. That's the new name. The story is laid out much like Revelation, believe it or not. In the first season, we see the current reality in this new alternative universe where Nazi Germany wins, the US no more, our national monuments destroyed, and in their place, Nazi symbols, dictatorship replacing democracy, and all the rest. Then in later seasons, especially the current, which is not good, it's the worst of all the seasons so far, but I haven't, I may or may not watch it. We see the details filled in regard, uh, regarding how this change of power took place. And the details revolving around characters involved. So they fill, they've already given the whole story. Now they're filling in what happened all along. And that's what we read tonight. Judgments delivered in chapters 8 through 10. And then uh, uh, John's revelation given to him by God shares in chapter 11 the characters involved. So here we go. Let's pray. Lord, we need you. Lord, we can argue and fight over such petty things while our friends and family don't know this message. Lord, most of us would agree that the enemy has closed closed the mouths of believers in this country Lord, who we are more addicted to comfort and ease than any other time in history. While our brothers and sisters around the world fearlessly proclaim the word in the face of some of the persecution we read about here in this book. So Lord, use this Holy Spirit as dynamite to ignite our hearts and free our hands and make our feet fast to share the gospel. In Jesus' name, amen. Revelation chapter 8 verse 2. John speaking here. And I saw the seven angels who stand before God and seven trumpets were given to them. Another angel who had a golden censer came and stood at the altar. He was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all God's people in the golden altar in front of the throne. The smoke of the incense together with the prayers of God's people went out before God and from the angel's hand. Then the angel took the censer, filled it with fire from the altar and hurled it on the earth. And there came peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. Then the seven angels, who had the seven trumpets, prepared to sound them. The first angel sounded his trumpet, and there came hail and fire mixed with blood, and it was hurled down on the earth. A third of the earth was burned up, a third of the trees were burned up, and all the green grass was burned up. The second angel sounded his trumpet, and something like a huge mountain, all ablaze, was thrown into the sea. A third of the sea turned into blood. A third of the living creatures in the sea died, and a third of the ships were destroyed. The third angel sounded his trumpet, and a great star blazing like a torch fell from the sky on a third of the rivers and on the springs of water. The name of the star is Wormwood. A third of the waters turned bitter, and many people died from the waters that had become bitter. We see this all-important number of seven again, God's judgments coming in the form of seven, seven angels blowing seven trumpets, Uh, marking God's perfection. And these angels will deliver another set of judgments, offering God's gracious act of gradual judgment to get the attention of those who are still far from Christ that they might turn to him while there's still time. Isn't that gracious? That God offers a gradual picture of his judgment. It doesn't just come all at once because that's not the nature of God. He's patient and wants all men to be saved. These trumpets announcing God's judgment are given in response to the prayers of martyred saints. We first read about them in chapter six where it says that they're praying for vengeance on those who have oppressed God's people. And God says, wait till the full number of martyrs. And then when the full number of martyrs have come into my presence, then wrath will come. And so the angels respond to this prayer from these martyrs. And it uh, it says that the way in which these angels respond, the way it's depicted, is peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. Then the angels prepared to sound their trumpets and unleash God's wrath. Now, I want to say you're not going to want to miss next week. This is just a shameless cliffhanger, cliffhanger I'm going to give you. We want God's wrath. And next week, we're going to learn how to worship God in his wrath. And there's much to be said about these martyred Christians and the way that they worship God in his wrath. We worship him in his love. We worship him in his grace. Worship him in his mercy, of course. But we always kind of tiptoe, don't we, around his wrath. But I promise you, next week, many of you will have a different perspective on God's wrath. So I know this is a little difficult to swallow this week, but hang in there as we talk about his wrath. It, we'll see how it fits into the rest of his character next week. So here are the judgments, the trumpets, The first trumpet or judgment is a third of the earth will be consumed with fire. Revelation chapter 8, verse 6. It says again, the first angel sounded his trumpet, and there came hail and fire mixed with blood, and it was hurled down to the earth. A third of the earth was burned up, a third of the trees were burned up, and all the green grass was burned up. So pretty, clear cut, a third of the earth is consumed by fire, everything green. Think about the climate changes that would result in that. If this is indeed literal, and if, if these things are not literal, if they all are, if most or all of them are figurative, it's still going to be horrifying, irregardless. I, I believe that this particular uh, judgment, for various reasons, I believe that it, it is literal. Then the second judgment comes: A third of the sea life destroyed. Verse eight, chapter eight. The second angel sounded his trumpet, and something like a huge mountain all ablaze, was thrown into the sea. A third of the sea turned into blood, a third of the living creatures in the sea died, and a third of the ships were destroyed. Now, here's clear symbolism, right? Oftentimes in Revelation, you hear John say he saw something like dot, dot, dot. So he says something like a huge mountain was thrown into the sea. Was it a a meteorite? I don't know. Uh, Was it the horseshoe? I'm not sure. Uh, I hope not. Uh, But we don't know, again, how these judgments will be delivered exactly, but we know the messages, again, turn while there's still time. Then it seems as if right after the second trumpet, the third comes, and that's a third of the fresh water life will be destroyed. Verse 10, The third angel sounded his trumpet, and a great star blazing like a torch fell from the sky on a third of the rivers and on the springs of water. The name of the star is Wormwood. A third of the waters turned bitter, and many people died from the waters that had become bitter. So now, probably most, or not all, of the seafood would be poisoned, and at least a third completely eradicated. A third of the forest and trees and grass, everything green, would be scorched earth. And on top of that, what we just read, we see a third of the fresh water sources destroyed, with many people dying. And wormwood, there it could mean Satan. It could mean uh, wormwood is a, a poisonous plant in the Old Testament. It could be Satan or his demons. Uh, I believe here that this is Satan. That somehow Satan and/or his demons will be released to poison the water. Uh, so, what do these judgments remind you of? Anything else in the Bible? Plagues the plagues on Egypt. Exactly. Very good. Did you say that, Justin? Yes. You're not allowed to answer because you were a Bible student. Uh, so, yeah, you went to Bible school, so you can't answer. No, I'm kidding. You can. not You can answer. Probably no one else would have. Uh, no offense, no offense. I shouldn't have said that out loud. I was just trying to make Justin feel good because I kind of roasted him in front of all of you. And saw uh, So yeah, the plagues brought on Egypt uh, before Christ came, hundreds of years before Christ came, the Egyptians were oppressing God's people, the Israelites, and God sent plagues, much like these in Revelation, on the natural order, so on creation, so that people could unmistakably see something has changed. For a giant red light, a giant neon light to be blinking, I'm trying to get your attention that people might turn to God. So heaped on top of all this loss of natural resources like nothing we've ever seen or even come close to seeing, this next plague I think is the worst of the first four. Listen to this. The fourth trumpeter judgment. A third of the earth's natural light will be extinguished. Verse 12 of chapter 8. The fourth angel sounded his trumpet and a third of the sun was struck, a third of the moon and a third of the stars so that a third of them turned dark. A third of the day was without light and also a third of the night. Then, whatever this loss of light's gonna be, it's gonna be bad. What kind of climate impact is this gonna have? A third of the sun. I think it'll make parts of the earth uninhabitable and it'll appear dreary, maybe like an Alaskan winter. But you see, that's the result of sin. That's the bigger message. It takes life away. It destroys life. You know, in many of these uh, trumpets, uh, God is allowing the powers of evil to be released on the earth. So in other words, he's allowing us to get what we want, which is life without him, hell on earth. And it's what most human beings that have walked the face of the earth have asked for, life without God. It destroys relationships through jealousy, hatred, and pornography. It steals our time and quality of thought with materialism and endless pursuit of entertainment and pleasure. It dehumanizes whole races and people groups with slavery, sex trafficking, drugs, and addiction. And here we see it sucking the life out of the waters, the earth, and the sky. We see it taking the beauty of creation and turning it to ashes. God is simply allowing us to have what we want, life without him in this future picture. The only reason we're not experiencing all of this right now is God's hand of protection, is holding the spiritual uh, forces of evil in the heavenly realms at bay, at least to a degree. As soon as he releases it, this is what we'll experience. It's only because of his grace, because he wants all men to be saved. We see his grace in the very next verse. Check this out, verse 13. Again, John's vision that God gave him, the revelation of God given through, communicated through John. As I watched, I heard an eagle that was flying in midair call out in a loud voice, woe, woe, woe to the inhabitants, of the, the inhabitants of the earth because of the trumpet blast about to be sounded by the other three angels. Do you see God's grace? He sang through this, this heavenly creature, this eagle, Hey, the, the, the last three judgments, the last three trumpets are going to be worse than the first four. Do You see, he could have just had one big resounding trumpet and brought judgment on the entire earth, wiped it clean like he did in the flood, and then come back and restore the earth, which is what we'll read about at the, in the end of Revelation. But he gives these, these, this gradual judgment that ones might turn and be saved. And he does this now for us too, doesn't he? Whether it's through looking into the wonders we see in the sky through a sunrise, or at night through a full moon, whether it's seen through a loving relationship, we see that surely God has created a masterpiece, and he's worthy of our praise. Or negatively, through death, disease, suffering, natural disasters, and the like. We see that this world and its people are beyond Repair, broken and in need of rescue. We see that, that certainly we were meant for something more, don't we? We all know that. Then we jump into these latter judgments. But before we do, don't miss God's grace. That's the whole point of this pause, where the eagle says, The, the, the worst is yet to come. Repent while there's still time. Don't you see God's grace in your life, both the, the positives that you experience every morning you wake up and God gives rhythm to your heart and the negatives with every tear. He wants you to see you were meant for more. So the fifth trumpet, judgment. Hellish creatures released to torture and kill. Revelation 9, verse one, it says, the fifth angel sounded his trumpet and I saw a star that had fallen from the sky to the earth. The star was given the key to the shaft of the abyss. When he opened the abyss, smoke rose from it like smoke from a gigantic furnace. The sun and sky were darkened by the smoke from the abyss, and out of the smoke, locusts came down on the earth and were given power like the scorpions of the earth. They were told not to harm the grass of the earth or any plant or tree, but only those people who did not have the seal of God on their foreheads. They were not allowed to kill them, but only to torture them for five months. And the agony they suffered was like that of a sting of a scorpion when it strikes. During those days, people will seek death but will not find it. They will long to die, but death will elude them. The locusts looked like horses prepared for battle. On their heads, there was something like crowns of gold, and their faces resembled human faces. Their hair was like a woman's hair, and their teeth were like lion's teeth. They had breastplates like breastplates of iron. and The sound of their wings was like the thundering of many horses and chariots rushing into battle. They had tails with stingers like scorpions, and in their tails, they had power to torment people for five months. They had as king over them the angel of the abyss, whose name in Hebrew is Abaddon, and in the Greek is Apollyon, that is destroyer. So this is Satan, prophesied of in Isaiah chapter 14, verse 12 through 14. This star is symbolic of Satan unlocking the very gates of hell to release demonic creatures to bring this... Destruction where people would be longing for death. But once again, we've said many times now throughout this series that God is still in control. Even though all hell is breaking loose on earth, God is allowing it. Nothing is happening outside of God's divine plan and sovereignty. And notice again the similarities to the plagues in Egypt. The locust plague, the eighth one in Exodus, were literal locusts destroying crops. But these are demons here in Revelation depicted in a horrific light. The plagues in Egypt were a foreshadowing of this final fulfilled day of the Lord that we read about in Revelation. And in Exodus, it was for a limited time. This judgment in Exodus was focused on a was focused on a limited people group, a specific location, but here it will be everywhere, around the entire world. So on to the next, the sixth. A third of mankind killed. Revelation 9:13. Aren't you glad this isn't the Christmas Eve teaching? Revelation 9, 13. I've got a little bit of a rebel in me, and I actually wanted to, I I considered for about 7.3 seconds tying it into the Christmas series, but I opted not to. I I had a way I thought I could do it. Revelation 9, 13, but don't worry, I won't. The sixth angel sounded his trumpet, and I heard a voice coming from the four horns of the golden altar that is before God. It said to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, "'Release the four angels who are bound "'at the great river Euphrates. "'And the four angels who had been kept ready "'for this very hour and day and month and year "'were released to kill a third of mankind. "'The number of the mounted troops "'was twice 10,000 times 10,000. "'I heard their number. "'The horses and riders I saw in my vision "'looked like this. "'Their breastplates were fiery red, "'dark blue, and yellow as sulfur. "'The heads of the horses resembled the heads of lions, "'and out of their mouths came fire.' smoke, and sulfur. A third of mankind was killed by the three plagues of fire, smoke, and sulfur that came out of their mouths. The power of the horses was in their mouths and their tails, for their tails were like snakes having heads with which they inflict injury. It's said the number of the mounted troops was 10,000 times 10,000. Any, Anyone in here, can they do uh, third grade math? Do you know how much that is? Two million. So two million demonic creatures released on earth. God is not nuanced here, is he? Through the entire Bible, if we throw out a God of judgment, we throw out the Judeo-Christian God. Do you know that? It is in every single genre of scripture. And that, my friends, is why Jesus died. Because God hates sin and he'll judge it. We were not meant to sin. We chose sin. We chose to rebel against God. We were created to be an intimate fellowship with God, and we broke the deal. We committed treason against our Creator. And it matters not what we think about that. What matters is what God says about it over thousands of years of redemptive history in Scripture. He says, "There will be judgment for sin. Turn while there's still time." I mean, at this point, just taking into account the fourth seal that we already read about, where a fourth of the earth's people were killed, and here a third more are killed, so half of the earth's population would be annihilated, not counting for all the other judgments. So there'd be even more than half. In fact, if this massive population decrease be taken literally, and I believe it is, it confirms the statement by Daniel prophesied in Daniel 12.1 in the words of Christ, prophesied in Matthew 24, 21, and 22 that the great tribulation will be without precedent and would end in the death of all mankind were it not stopped by the second coming of Christ. That is what sin does. It kills. It leaves scorched earth. That's all it can do. Life without God is devoid of life. It's death. And yet in all this, look how many respond with a stubborn refusal a stubborn refusal to obey God. Look at this, it's astounding. These signs will be like none that have been seen in history. And look how many respond. Revelation 9, verse 20. The rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues still did not repent of the work of their hands. They did not stop worshiping demons and idols of gold, silver, bronze, stone, and wood. Idols that cannot see or hear or walk, nor did they repent of their murders, their magic arts, their sexual immorality, or their thefts. If you think, or your family, or your friends that you share the gospel, if they think that if I just had a sign, I'd turn to God, people have never turned to God simply because of a sign. A sign is meant to get the attention of people, but it's the Holy Spirit who saves. Even the most horrific signs that we read about here, and the ones that we read about in the Old Testament that were more temporary, but still very severe judgments. There were some who repented, but most went their own way and ignored it. Think about the plagues in Egypt It decimated land and beasts and even took out much of their population, but they still hardened their heart even to pursuing God's people to their own destruction, trying to bring them back into slavery. When this time comes, it'll be horrific, but what will be more heartbreaking will be the stiff-necked response to God by those who don't follow him who are left alive. They'll make excuses because that's what people do. Maybe credit the destruction to natural evolutionary issues or other life forms. I I don't know. No one does. Who knows? But we know humans always find false rationale to justify their desire to live life without God for themselves. So with sores and burns and terrified hearts and loved ones who have been killed and seeing all hell break loose on earth, still most will go their own way. So don't miss the obvious. Tonight, if you don't know him, surrender your heart to him. To live life without God is a serious offense. And he wants so much more for you. Don't you see that you can't have life without the life giver? Those things that you think will suck life away and make life boring or religious, I want you to know Jesus is not about religion. He's not about a bunch of li- a list of do's and don'ts. He's about a relationship with you. He wants to rescue you and give you the life that you've been longing for all along that you've been looking in the wrong places and the wrong people to fulfill. He wants to do that in and for you. So now as I mentioned at the beginning of our time tonight, the pause button is hit as John gives his spirit-inspired account of the end of sin and the beginning of the new creation. Giving us insight into the various personalities involved in the day of the Lord. Okay, so he's laid us out. Here's what's going to happen, just as he's done several times already. Now he's backfilling with here's some of the characters involved. First, we get these two heavenly witnesses. Revelation chapter eleven, verse three it says, "In uh, this is God speaking through John." And I will appoint my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1,260 days, clothed in sackcloth. They are the two olive trees and the two lampstands, and they stand before the Lord of the earth. If anyone tries to harm them, fire comes from their mouths and devours their enemies. This is how anyone who wants to harm them must die. They have power to shut up the heavens so that it will not rain during the time they are prophesying. And they have power to turn the waters into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they want. Now, when they have finished their testimony, the beast that comes up from the abyss will attack them and overpower and kill them. Their bodies will lie in the public square of the great city, which is figuratively called Sodom and Egypt, where also the Lord was crucified. For three and a half days, some from every people, tribe, language, and nation will gaze on their bodies and refuse them burial." The inhabitants of the earth will gloat over them and they will celebrate by sending each other gifts because these two prophets had tormented those who lived on the earth. So these two prophets will end the long line of prophets that we read about in scripture. They will be the final prophets. And they'll prophesy for 1,260 days. That's three and a half years. And these two witnesses are described giving uh, two symbols. The first is an olive tree, and that's simply, uh, it's used often in the Old Testament to describe God's people. And the second is a lampstand. They'll be offering spiritual illumination for hard hearted people, just like Elijah did, just like Moses did, just like Jeremiah did, and, and many others. You know what that tells us? Don't share Christ because you think someone's going to be receptive. I want to say that again. Don't share Christ just to those who you think will be receptive. God has called his prophets and in the end he calls his people to share even with those that these believers know will torment, torture, and kill them. You share, we share because God has commanded us to and it's our joy to that every man, woman, and child have opportunity after opportunity after opportunity after opportunity to hear and respond. Because any days we trade On this earth, that others might have all eternity with him in heaven will seem like no sacrifice at all when we sing God's praises together with those saints for all of eternity. We also read, uh, second character here is this beast in verse 7. This demonic beast is allowed to assassinate these messengers of God. And he does so in a way that, flaunts the powers of evil that makes it look like those who follow God are fools. It's in a very public way. In fact, it says in verse eight and nine that it'll be a dark evangelism of sorts, that just as uh, Christ is offered to every nation, tribe, people, and language in the New Testament, some from every nation, tribe, and people will come from all over the world to witness these two messengers' death. And refuse them a burial. Verse 10 says that these people will even celebrate their death. It will be like a dark and evil Christmas. It says they'll even exchange gifts. They'll have a celebration, a party, because these tormentors, in many ways, sent from God to be, again, a reminder of the devastating effects of sin are finally out of their hair. And they'll celebrate this. And they'll feel justified, I'm sure, in their stubbornness because they'll look at these two messengers that have died and say, surely God is not real or at least not worthy because these messengers failed, they died. And that's what sin does, doesn't it? It calls evil good and good evil. Many think that the biblical and godly view of sexuality is oppressive and bad. That pornography, sexual infidelity, and objectifying humans for which Christ died for, for our own sexual pleasure, is good and natural. And we could go on with more examples. But this dark party, this evil Christmas will end. Revelation 11, verse 11. It says, but after three and a half days, the breath of life from God entered them, and they stood on their feet, and terror struck those who saw them. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud while their enemies looked on. This celebration for the beast and his followers will end at the destruction of these two messengers from God. And apparently, this miracle, this resurrection turned the hearts of some. Check this out. Verse 13. At that very hour, there was a severe earthquake and a tenth of the city collapsed. 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake and the survivors were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. So there are some who responded, but again, we see from Genesis to Revelation that most don't respond to God's judgment. So more judgment was necessary from the Lord, uh, again, to get the attention of those who were left alive. So we hit the play button again. We've, we, the the backfilling has been accomplished. We've heard about the various characters involved, and now John hits the play button again, and we see the final judgment the final trumpet which is the picture of the second coming of Christ revelation 11 verse 15 the seventh angel sounded his trumpet and there were loud voices in heaven which said the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our lord and his messiah and he will reign forever and ever and the 24 elders who were seated in their thrones before god fell on their faces and worshiped god saying we give thanks to you god lord we give thanks to you lord god almighty the one who is and who was because you've taken your great power and have begun to reign The nations were angry and your wrath has come. The time has come for judging the dead and for rewarding your servants, the prophets and your people who revere your name, both great and small, and for destroying those who destroy the earth. Then God's temple in heaven was opened and within his temple was seen the ark of his covenant. And there came flashes of lightning, rumblings and peals of thunder, an earthquake and a severe hailstorm. So the cycle is complete. Just like last week, Revelation 6 is judgment. Revelation 7 gave a picture of the second coming of Christ to give God's people hope, and that's what we see here. Judgment in chapters 8 through 10, and then a picture of the second coming of Christ in uh, chapter 11. But you know what's awesome here? Did you hear the description of Jesus? How is it normally worded? The one who was, the one who is, and the one who is to come. What's left out here? To come, because he's already come. He'll always be the one who was and the one who is. But just for now, for this brief little time in history, he's still the one to come. Think about that. The longest period of history is going to be after the coming of Christ, when he reigns on the new earth for all eternity. We live, on a, we live in a, a, a time period that's going to end very quickly. It's almost over. Because the scripture tells us that, light, that life is like a vapor, that it's like a breath on a cold day. It's just a moment. So we see a picture here of Christ coming and restoring the earth to the way it was meant to be before sin entered the world. We are not going to go to heaven. When Jesus comes back. Do you know that we're not going to be on a cloud? We're not going to be playing a harp or anything like that. And by all means, don't think that we're going to be bored. Do you think from what we've read about in Revelation, you're going to be bored? The reality is, and I've said this many times, I'll say it again, our earthly bodies as they exist now cannot handle the weight of God's glory. Because he's so magnificent, he's so beautiful, he's so awe-inspiring, our hearts would explode, our eyes would pop out of our heads like marbles and shoot across the room, I believe, because he's too much. But we'll be given new bodies that we might behold his glory. And he will reign on this earth, and he will restore all things. The tree will be greener and will live forever. The animals will not be combative. The waters will be clear as crystal. The streets, John says, will be like gold. And we are to fantasize about this. Did you know that? We've been given the ability to be creative, the ability to have an imagination for this, that we might fixate on this book. And I think that's why the enemy tries to keep us away from it. It is the book taught probably the least. Uh, Maybe in the whole Bible, but certainly in the New Testament. And it's the book read the least. You don't have to, and I don't have to understand every detail. I don't understand most of the details of Revelation, or at least I'm not sure. But I know the main themes that we've already talked about, and we fix on those, particularly the images of the renewed earth and our reigning king. That makes us deception-proof. And that makes us bulletproof in times of suffering. Brothers and sisters, these four chapters call us to action. Number one, we pray for purity and holiness as we await his return. Our battle is fierce and will only become more strong and deceptive as the end draws near. The powers of hell want to convince us that sin satisfies, and the temptation is real and strong, to be sure. We saw in our reading tonight that in the end, these temptations will be so strong that people will see the obvious work of God that will be obvious to those who know and love Jesus, but they'll remain hard-hearted. The objective of evil is to destroy and blind and deceive, plain and simple. It's through pure devotion to Christ that will avoid deception. And there are a couple of ways that are very simple to become deception-proof, and God has laid them out in his word. It's just very easy. First of all, don't neglect the regular meeting together of the saints. I've decided from now on, just so you know, That every wedding I do, if if you love Jesus, you and your spouse, this is the agreement. If I marry you, you say I'm committed to coming to church and home group every week. Here's why. I don't want to see you get deceived. And the easiest thing you can do is not neglect the regular meeting together of the saints. The enemy's goal is always to isolate and deceive. And for you singles, even more so, your family... The family you choose needs to be the family of God. Stay in fellowship. Enjoy other believers. Party with them. Do OSU parties. You know, go out to dinner with them. Celebrate their birthdays. Hang out a lot. Okay, how many of you ever watched the show Friends? This dates me a little bit. Okay, but we should be that without all the sin. But we should be what the world, we should be what the world covets. That man, I want that kind of intimacy. I want those kind of friendships. And I believe we have that in many, many, many pockets here at Awaken, but we can always grow. Second, stay on mission. And we need to do it now while it's still relatively easy, because it will just get harder. Third, enjoy the risen Christ by soaking in the vision of Jesus that we read about here in Revelation, that we read about in books like Ephesians. In Philippians, that we read about in the Gospels, that we read about in the Prophets, that we read about in the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, so many pictures of God. That is our focus. The Bible is not primarily a list of, okay, how am I supposed to raise my family? How am I supposed to live my single life? It has all that stuff, and it's good. But the most important thing we can do with this sword we call the Scripture is look into the face of Jesus Christ, Number two, live in the confident assurance that God will keep you secure. Our identity in Christ, in sense of security, the litmus test for that that's stronger than any other is do we make him known? If we share Christ, no matter the cost, we show that our heart is secure in him. If we don't, our security is elsewhere. Because we're commanded from the very beginning till the end of God's story to share him without fear. Because in the end, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord and let's speed his coming that we might bring as many as possible to that day when, when we see him face to face. Can we do that as we go into this holiday and the temptation for many of us is to isolate. The temptation for many of us, myself included, is to take a break. And I know many of you, man, you have been you have been battered. Don't isolate this season. Get around your family in here and make him known. Share them with your loved ones. Pray for opportunity, because it's not our work. We see, even when it should be painfully obvious, people's hearts remain hard. We share that it might be one more seed, it might be one more watering, and we know God will provide the growth. We don't know when, we don't know how. The miracle of salvation is greater than any other. And let's pray for that over this holiday season. Lord, we thank you for your grace and your mercy that you give us in this letter. We thank you, Lord, that you have painted a horrific and painful, but also beautiful picture of your redemption in this letter. Lord, I pray that you'd help us to take it to heart, Oh, well, that we would turn our eyes on Jesus, that we would look full at his glorious face, that the things of earth may, go stri- may grow strangely dim as we look towards the light of your glory and grace. In Jesus' name, amen.